Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Academy to discuss the farm system, but first joining me as usual is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing tonight? Hey Max, uh, doing just as well as we always are on our podcast. You know, it's not what's what's not to love during baseball season. Well, I think some of our fans may have transitioned to football season. We're trying to hold on to the few baseball fans we have left in the last few weeks. Uh, but when, and you know, hey. There's there's a lot of reasons to tune in to see the Royals these last couple weeks. So, uh, also joining us to talk about the Royals is Alex Duval of Royals Farm a Report. Alex, how are you doing tonight? Doing well, Max. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, well, it's good that we have you on because uh, we want to talk a little bit about uh, you know the Royals not maybe aren't having success this year in the postseason, uh, but the minor league affiliates are, and four of the Royals affiliates won championships in their respective leagues, the Wilmington Blue Rocks in the Carolina League, the Lexington Legends in the South Atlantic League, the Idaho Falls Chukars in the Pioneer League, and one of the Royals Dominican Summer League teams all won championships this month. It's the first time a team has had as many as four minor league champions uh, in the same year since the Indians in 2004, at least according to uh, the Royals uh, uh, media relations. Alex, uh, what's your takeaway from the, from the on-field success for these minor league teams? Is there anything we can kind of glean from it, is it or is it just kind of something that's nice for the, for those guys that want it? Yeah, I think it's something that's that's it's just nice for the guys. And, you know, I don't think that, um, you know, anything about the DSL winning that championship means anything for the future. I don't know that the Pioneer League really means anything uh, of great significance. Um, but what I do think it kind of the hints at is that the Royals have have really found a way to, to beat that that Pythagorean uh, formula that we all kind of point to right it's the the run scored minus you know runs allowed and you know what should your record be based on um, the run differential and and the Royals have proven pretty pretty well that you know good base running good defense just good um, fundamental baseball and then great bullpens will win you baseball games um, despite the lack of, you know, an elite offense. And I think the Carolina League, the Wilmington Blue Rocks, is a great example of that. Um, they had the worst offense in that league in a long time. And, you know, offense is going up around baseball. And so for to have the worst offense in a league in, you know, over a dozen years and still win the championship just kind of shows what um, good pitching does. It shows what a good bullpen does, good defense um, you can overcome a lot of things, and it, it doesn't always translate to the big league level. Um, but I think it shows the Royals clearly have a plan um, they're going to stick to. Um, and I think it shows what the long-term process is probably going to be 
um, as those guys get to the big league level. And I think what was interesting with that Wilmington club too is that they a lot of those guys won a championship last year in Lexington, including manager Scott Thorman. And, and so I think that kind of fits into the Royals' plan of having guys come up together and kind of succeed together. Uh, and we'll see. And I know Nick Prado and MJ Melendez had a rough year. But, Sean, is there anything you kind of take away from, from the, the teams having that kind of success on the field? No, other than the, just the statistical oddity that it is. And, like, it was funny because, like, it made sense, like, when – Coar and Singer, I think they were all there at the same time. Coar, Singer, maybe Bubik wasn't um, at the same time, or, or Boland, but it would it makes sense if you got those four guys, but half of them got promoted, um, and then still they just kind of kept on winning, and then same thing in the playoffs. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, pitching wins championships. Apparently, uh, the currency of baseball is working out. They got they are they're billionaires. The Royals are, if that's true. So. So like I mentioned, the, the 2004 Indians were the last team to kind of accomplish this. And I went back to look at their farm system. It's a pretty good farm system back then, but the teams that won championships, at least at the lower levels, there are not a lot of guys that you would really remember. I think a couple of the guys made it to the big leagues. Uh, their, their Dominican League team, well, I don't know, it actually doesn't list who was on that roster, but I know their, their short season New York Penn League team won. A couple of guys like uh, Ryan Garko, if you remember him, Michael Aubrey, uh, Fausto Carmona, who later was revealed to be a guy named Roberto Hernandez. Uh, those are probably the best players, so not exactly the core of later teams. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that was actually the Appalachian League team in Kinston. The New York Penn League team, not a lot of names you would remember. Tony Sipp, the reliever, is probably the biggest name. Uh, but their AAA team also won a championship that year, and that team did have Grady Sizemore, who was only 21 years old at the time, Johnny Peralta, Brandon Phillips, as well as a couple older guys like Russ Branion and Ernie Young, who were kind of AAA veterans. So kind of a mix of young guys and older guys. I don't know. I'm kind of – I think I tend to lean towards you, Sean. I think it probably doesn't mean – I think, and I think also, Alex, you're kind of saying the same thing. It's, it's a nice thing for them to, to, to win, and I do think the Royals have a plan where they want these guys to kind of have some success together. But, uh, you know, these are – Short, minor league seasons are kind of odd anyway in that you had I'm like Lexington had a really good first half and then they kind of weren't that great in the second half overall they had a losing record this year uh, but then in a short series you know you, they can kind of uh, catch fire and, and have a couple good breaks they had an exciting I, I think they believe I believe they had the uh, exciting walk-off uh, series winner uh, with Reed Roman hitting a, a walk-off home run so kind of a cool I think it's kind of neat that they want it uh, I don't know if it means a whole lot but it's like I've said before, it's better that they win rather than lose. Uh, I did want to kind of go over now that the minor league season's over and look at some of the full season, um, uh, some of the full season teams. With all due respect to the short season teams, I think I kind of want to stick to the guys that played all, you know, a full five months. And let's start with the Lexington team. Um, they won their second consecutive championship this year. And Sean, you had an article this week about, um, or I guess last week about. Uh, that where you listed each of your minor league player of the years for each affiliate. Let's start with Lexington. Who did you have as your uh, your top player for the Lexington Legends this year? Yeah, um, I thought it was kind of cheating. Maybe not cheating, but it was uh, Michael Gigliotti, um who had to repeat Lexington kind of just due to injuries. Um, he's a little bit behind um, as far as where the path was, but he missed that whole year with the ACL injury. Uh, and then kind of just got started in rookie ball and then got sent uh, back to Lexi where he was he was great again. So he's been there before, um, but um, he had a really good season there, sold a 
29 bases and was barely even on the field. Uh, excuse me, was barely didn't play a ton of games. Is what I'm going to say, his stolen uh, were was way up there among led all of a ball. Um, so he was just my guy. Uh, I would like. Obviously, he went to Double A or excuse me, High A Wilmington. Didn't do very well. Um, it was his first test there, and obviously, it came after he'd already been in rookie ball, already been in Lexington. So we'll see back in High A next year. Um, I would imagine, uh, but I, I wouldn't be against necessarily just sending him to Double A. Not sending anybody to ever go to Wilmington, but if we have to, then uh, that's probably where he goes. Yeah, the Lexington team seemed kind of light on the hitting, maybe a little more heavier with the pitching. Uh, and I don't know if that that maybe is reflective of the South Atlantic League. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts kind of on the legends? I know they had a few maybe in, intriguing under the radar arms, including Charlie Newweiler, who I know you recently interviewed. Who are some maybe names that you think uh, are kind of intriguing at that level? Yeah, the middle infield for that team, uh, consisting at any point in time of Rubindi Jaquez, Jason Guzman, and Nathan Eaton. I think it was John Calvano um, of the – he writes about the South Atlantic League. Said it was the most tooled up infield he'd seen at that level this year. Um, Jaquez can really run. Last year he hit for some power. Uh, this year, not really at all. Uh, Jason Guzman's been around for a while. Really good defender, phenomenal athlete, just doesn't really hit. Uh, Nate Eaton kind of hit last year, and then this year he um, started off really well, and then the power just was zapped. He didn't hit for any power, kind of like I thought he might. Um, but still, those are three guys that are really intriguing. Uh, you mentioned Charlie Newweiler, um, you know, good, really, really, really good curveball. Um, the fastball, I think, just needs to play up a little bit for him to be, uh, you know, a legitimate prospect. Um, I've had him in my top 30 pretty consistently over the last year and a half. Um, so I, I like him, um, but I still th- want to see some more development from the fastball. Um, the one guy that, um, I think flies under everybody's radar is an Australian by the name of Brandon Markland. Um, that kid came over and absolutely shoved, um, out of the bullpen for Lexington. And we know the Royals like to develop their relievers. Um, but he was flat out dominant, uh, the entire year that he pitched for Lexington. So he's a guy whose fastball runs up into the upper nineties at times, um, with a wipeout breaking ball. And he's, you know, he's old for the level and, you know, we're going to need to see him pitch at some legitimate levels of baseball next year. Um, but that's a relief prospect that I will definitely have my eye on um, next year as coming out of the Australian League. And Markland gave up two runs in 39 in the third inning, 0.46 ERAs, uh, two earned runs, I should say. He gave up seven total runs. Uh, still pretty impressive, 44 strikeouts over a strikeout per inning. Uh, definitely someone, to, I guess, to keep an eye out for the future. Um, Sean, there's a couple intriguing arms. I think we mentioned Newweiler. Uh, John Heasley, I think, is another guy. Is there is there maybe an arm you're kind of looking at as a top performer at Lexington? No, I mean, it would have to be, um, I guess, are we counting? Well, I hadn't started my article yet. I was trying to think of how, how long Boland, if Boland spent most of his time in Lexington or if he spent most of his time in Wilmington. Um, yeah, it's kind of tough with those guys that kind of split yeah, time at both. And I, yeah, I, I know there's a lot of guys that really performed well at Lexington, but they got promoted so early. It's like, do you count yeah. them as, as a top pitcher? But there are, you know, it seems like a lot of Let's, guys perform pretty well at that level. Yeah, I would almost say I think it would be fair, um, and maybe I'm kind of uh, spilling the lead here, but um, I think it'd be fair to give Bubik if you're going to give Bubik who had 100 something innings, if you're going to give him the the Wilmington kind of award. Bolin at least kind of split it, um, and you're kind of punishing Bolin, you know, in a way. Um, so no, I, I think I think he would be up there. 
for the guys that did really well. Um, obviously, Chris Bubik did well. Um, Evan Steele, it was kind of nice to see him back. Um, you know, it feels like we drafted him five years ago, but it's only been 2017 and because he missed all of 18. Um, and so it's nice to see kind of him back on the field now, and he did fairly well. A um, little older for Lexington now, 22, uh, but it was nice seeing him back. So there's a couple guys there, Zach Kay, Austin Cox, some guys that are at least interesting names. Um, but, it, you know, it's... I think it's I think it's between Bolin or Bubik as the two who maybe did the best there, and they just had crazy numbers um, overall. Uh, There's also another guy, Andre Nunez, Ugh, Andre God, Andre Nunez, um, who's a little over 23, but he had I think he struck out 30 something percent of the batters he faced uh, in Lexington. Obviously, like I said, a little old, um, and he was. You know, much more of kind of a, a reliever. He didn't start a single game, but his numbers were at least impressive, and he's done that at every single level, too, um, when he was in the two different levels of rookie ball, um, and then, of course, this year in Lexington as well. So he was another guy that I was looking at that had a pretty dang good season. Not much on the radar, total relief-only prospect guy, but still kind of interesting to see someone strike out 30% of the batters and only walked, uh, I think it was like 6%. So it was a pretty, pretty big difference. Let's move on to the Wilmington, and I know that seems to be where the Royals put a lot of their top prospects this year. We had Nick Prado, MJ Melendez, Suli Matias, who unfortunately missed the second half with a hand injury. Uh, we saw Chris Bubik, Daniel Lynch, Brady Singer, Jackson Kowar all started there before uh, those they, those guys got promoted. Uh, Sean, as far as top player, position player at Wilmington, you had Brewer Hicklin. Tell us a little about how Hicklin kind of overcame the tough hitting environment in Wilmington and became their, their top hitter. Yeah, um, he actually ended up being, he led all the Royals minor leagues in weighted runs created plus um, by a good bit. He was 131 uh, WRC plus compared to Gigliotti, who was 119, and then Brett Phillips, who was kind of, obviously he's in the majors now, but he was at 112. Um, so really, really big league there. Um, it was nice to see Hicklin kind of back it up. Uh, he had some questions about his injury, but he, you know, kind of overcame it has, has done well we'll see what his kind of future is um he's he's somewhere that you could i always say you could squint and see five tools but you really you could see four um his big thing is i'm questioning on if he's going to be able to make enough contact at the upper level uh but he could be a guy he's one of those off the radar top 100 guys that he could get to double a hit really well and kind of force people's hand to put him either in the back half of the top 100 or really consider it. And then, um, same thing where, you know, you could see him dominate in double a triple a get called up and end up being a two, three win player kind of not necessarily out of nowhere, but enough that he's got a strong hitting background and the tools are at least somewhat there and he's dominated at every single time. So he's a guy that, you know, it's tough to put him down among the top 100 in the game, but he's a guy that wouldn't surprise me necessarily if five years from now, he's, he's a solid everyday major leaguer, just given his flexibility to play different positions, his power, he's got good speed. And, you know, you could live with, if he could figure out a 25% strikeout rate, I, I think he could be an everyday kind of guy. Yeah. And I thought he was interesting as a draft pick, just because he was kind of a toolsy guy but he was a college player, so he was maybe a little more polished than like guys coming out of high school. And and he, I think I believe he was a little young for a college college guy as well. So maybe a little bit more upside than your typical college player, uh, uh, but a little more polished than some of your high school players. So uh, I've, I've definitely been high on him uh, since he was drafted. You know, Alex, we've talked a lot about how the Wilmington environment affects hitters, and and especially guys. You know, we've seen Prado and, and Melendez struggle so much, but we we should probably talk about how it 
Wilmington uh, affects pitchers as well. I mean, the whole team for the Blue Rocks, they posted a team ERA of 3.00. And, you know, we saw some of the top pitching prospects there. And, and, and they went, they got promoted and they still performed well. So it obviously wasn't entirely a product of the Carolina League. But does that, I don't know, do you make that, do you think that extreme environment kind of makes it tough to evaluate some of these arms? Or, you know, because, you know, I'm sure a lot of these guys are putting up really good numbers, uh, and some of that's going to just have to be due to Frawley Stadium, right? Some of it. And I think, you know, there was a, a lot of the uh, Royals fans on social media, you know, when we talked about the struggles of Prado and Melendez, wanted to point it, well, it's the Carolina League. Well, it's Wilmington. Well, it's this. You know, and that doesn't contribute to a 40% K rate. Right. Um, so, so the strikeouts to walk stuff, I think you can pretty well evaluate based on age and level. Like Chris Bubich is 21 and, and then playing an A ball, but he was like the third or fourth youngest pitcher in that entire league all year. So, you know, really the only thing, I think the biggest thing when you're evaluating pitchers in that league is their home run rate. Um, and I think we've seen pretty well that every pitcher that the Royals have had, the, you know, top prospects that go through there, they have a home run rate that is whatever it is in Lexington and, and low A ball. They get to high A and it goes way down. They get to double A and it goes right back to where it was. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, in terms of ERA, in terms of FIP, just because of their home run rate, you have to look at home run to fly ball rate, um, home runs per nine, whatever your preferred home run stat is. Um, but we have to expect that's going to go up, right? Right. Brady Singer's home runs per nine was 0.16 while he was in Carolina. And then he goes to the Texas League and it goes back up to 0.79. Right, so it jumps, you know, like half a home run per nine innings, and I think that's just expected. But in terms of strikeouts, in terms of um, you know dominating your pitcher, you're dominating the hitters at that level. They those guys were right on par with the age for that level, um, and, and so I think you know we can take that away as being good things, um, and just we can't expect them to be that dominant at Double A just because of the home run environment that they're playing in. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how a lot of these guys transition to double-A. We've seen some of these guys already transition, and they, they've performed pretty well. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, that's, many people have said that's one of the biggest jumps in, in the minor leagues, and, and uh, so we'll have to see how some of those guys respond. Uh, let's move up to double-A, uh, and, and that's typically where you want to see some of your best prospects excel because many times you're going up against some of the toughest prospects. And, uh, Sean, you chose Gabriel Cancel as your as your kind of double uh, A player of the year for the Royals over Khalil Lee, who I think many would say is a top prospect at least. Uh, Cancel had certainly had a fine season. He had 246, 308 on base, 427 slug with 18 home runs while playing second base. Uh, Khalil Lee had a 264 uh, average, 363 on base, 372 slug with 53 steals. Didn't have, quite have uh, the power that that Cancel uh, showed. What kind of gave you the edge to Cancel over Lee in your mind? Um, part of it is just kind of wanted to mix it up. I think everybody knows about Khalil Lee um, for the most part, but it was nice kind of highlighting a guy that maybe a lot of people don't know a lot about. Um, he was, you know, finished third in the Texas League in homers, second in doubles, sixth in RBIs, and then sixth in isolated slugging. So um, he hit for a bunch of power, as you can see. Um, you know, didn't walk as much as Lee, didn't steal as many bases, uh, but did still did still steal 15. Um, and so he and Lee were fairly close um, overall, like on a weighted runs created plus standpoint. And I kind of just gave him the, the, the nod just to kind of 
highlight someone other than Lee necessarily. It, it, and it could have gone either way. And I'm I'm happy to you know even maybe looking back I should have just split it between the two, which is fine. Um, but I just figured part of it'd be like okay, we can give it to a guy that maybe people don't know a lot about that did very well, um, isn't that much older than Lee, and had a had pretty dang good season um, from the power numbers too. Alex, how do you kind of assess Khalil Lee's season this year? I know he's a guy that. You know, as a former second-round pick, uh, has been a high on a lot of prospect lists. So I think they're they're kind of counting on him. He seems to fit their profile, the kind of player they like, in that he can, you know is a speedy, uh, good defensive outfielder. Uh, is he kind of on track? Do you think, or is there, where are some kind of strengths and weaknesses to his game right now after the season he had? Yeah, I tweeted out from the Royals Farm Report account a while back some guys that were his age. Clearly, is twenty-one years old, right? And so he is. Um, or maybe he just turned 22. He's technically in his age 21 season, right? If he's 22, he turned 22 after July 1st. Um, so I think he's 22 now. Anyways, 21-year-old season. Um, guys in at double-A to have on-base percentages that are close to his, and his on-base percentage this year was 363. Um, and the list of names that he's on there with is really, really good. Um, I don't have that pulled up. I don't remember what that list was. But his is really, really good, and it's elite for his age. If you buy into minor league batted ball data, if you go over to RotoWire, they have some minor league batted ball data. Now it's uh, very subjective um, because they have guys that, you know, video scouts watch games, and then they every batted ball they count as being hard, hard hit, medium hit, or soft hit. So it's very subjective, but um, Khalili's soft hit rate was really really high so he's not hitting the ball um very hard very consistently but it's not that he's incapable you know he can hit the ball really really hard he's capable of hitting some absolute moonshots uh, when he gets a hold of it it's just a matter of doing it with consistency and keeping the strikeout rate down i know the royals talked to him about you know concerting an effort to hit the ball on the ground in an effort to cut down on the strikeout rates and he did. I think his strikeout rate, um, I can pull it up. He only struck out 28% of the time as a 21-year-old at AA, which is lower than he struck out as a 19-year-old um, in low A ball a couple years ago. So his strikeouts have actually come down, and, and he's doing pretty well in that regard. But he just doesn't hit the ball with much authority consistently enough. Um, I think he's capable. I just don't know what's going to happen to the strikeouts if he starts swinging harder. Um, but one thing is for sure, his on-base ability is absolutely wonderful. Um, and, you know, even if he doesn't hit for much power, um, you know, a guy that can be in the one or two hole in your lineup, steal you 20 bases and be on base at a 34, 35% clip playing good defense in the outfield, uh, you know, that'll play. That's a that's a 2-3 win player that I think um, can slot into your lineup uh, every day for, you know, a few years. Yeah, and I think that anytime there's a player in the Fort Royals farm system that has a pretty good on-base percentage or an excellent on-base percentage like uh, Lee has, I think we at Royals review get pretty excited because it just, just it seems kind of rare. I mean, it's not, you don't get a lot of guys that seem to show uh, that kind of play discipline. So, yeah, I'm pretty excited about Lee. I think he had a really solid season. The the speed was really interesting to me because I, I knew he had good speed, but the 53 steals, I don't know uh, if I expected him ever to have a kind of season like that, and we'll see if – that translates to any higher levels, but uh, that certainly makes him a very intriguing, uh, you know, top of the order kind of guy. Uh, let's move up to Omaha. Tough season for the Storm Chasers. They went 59 and 80 this year. Uh, and but Pacific Coast League was kind of a 
ridiculous league this year. Just in, you know, they they of course adopted the the Major League Baseball ball this year, and the results were that the uh, league wide ERA was five point four nine. The uh, Salt Lake City Bees had a team ERA of six point seven eight. Just kind of a ridiculous league this year. Uh, Sean, you had your Triple A Player of the Year is Brett Phillips, uh, uh, who of course now is with the Royals. He had 240, 378 on base percentage, 505 slug with 18 home runs. What's going to be your position on the usefulness of Triple A at this point? Is it, you know, it's so difficult to evaluate these players. Uh, a lot of times it's kind of a kind of a, a just a place to put, you know guys that aren't good enough to play in the big leagues who are, you know, in their, in the end, at the end of their career, Omaha actually had one of the younger teams in the Pacific coast league, which is kind of interesting that the Royals actually had some, some kind of younger guys there, but is you know, is triple a almost like obsolete at this point. Yeah, I wouldn't use, I wouldn't use any stats from triple a for anybody under maybe 22 or excuse me, anybody over 22, um, maybe 23, but you're really, it's there's a point where if a guy's 20 and he's doing well in AAA, that stands out. Even with the new offensive environment in AAA, um, you know if he's posting at age 20, you know Dylan Carlson will say of the Cardinals if they call him up, and he might actually be in AAA at this point. Um, you know, with he, when he gets called up and he does well in AAA, okay, that's something you're going to take a look at because you know he's only I'm pulling up right now. He is 20, right, and he was in AAA, and in his 18 games, he had a 161 WRC plus. So that's not something you can just dismiss as being kind of the the environment. I mean, as a 20 year old dominating fairly well, obviously he dominated in Double A, then did pretty well in Triple A in the small sample size. So that's something that kind of jumps out. But if you're talking about like a 23 year old um, doing well in Triple A, especially with like I said the new environment, you really don't get anything out of that numbers wise. Um, teams were going away from promoting guys to AAA to begin with anyways not in every case but a lot of times players would just get called up right from AA the Royals um, especially they seem like they've had a lot of their top prospects either skip AAA or spend very little time there yeah yeah so it, it, it's not that you can't get anything from that um, I think it I actually kind of like the idea of pitchers in AAA a little bit um, in the sense that I think you get I think the one thing that disappears a lot in double in double A. It doesn't necessarily exist. Is triple A's filled with kind of those uh, pitchers who have had a ton. I mean, excuse, let me start again. It's filled with uh, pitchers who have been to the major leagues. Um, it's a lot easier because you've got those kind of revolving bullpens and even rotations where you've got the you know random six seven starters who aren't good enough for the MLB, but they're okay in triple A. But they've got MLB experience. And you've got guys who know how to pitch as opposed to guys in double A who are just like, okay, I throw 98. I'm just going to try and throw a pass to you. Um, or I've got a really good curveball. I'm just going to try and bury it a couple times and, and get you on that. Where when you get to triple A, you've got these kind of old time, old time, I almost said old time, these older pitchers who have maybe been around in baseball for five, six years, reached the majors, you know, two or three times, but, you know, been promoted or been demoted. But, You've got guys who more so know how to pitch than just kind of blow it by you. I think that's something you can learn in AAA that you can't learn in AA, um, which I like that idea for hitters a bit more to actually face guys who are experienced in that. But um, numbers-wise, it's tough to get anything out of it. And, and I say that as someone who obviously loves numbers, and especially you know uh, prospect numbers, but it's tough uh, to get anything out of it at this point. It almost seems like teams are using it more of like a taxi squad of like, you know, like the Dodgers – 
yeah. would just kind of shuttle guys in and out as needed by the major yeah. league squad without yeah. really probably too much consideration of like development. Um, Alex and the Astros, the Astros are basically give the Astros don't scout triple A anymore. They said, forget it. You don't get anything out of it. We're just going to use numbers only for triple A. So, I mean, I think that goes to show that triple A is kind of that, um, whatever that middle ground is between heaven and hell purgatory, I think in a bit. Yeah. Alex, do you have any thoughts on how triple A could be used? And is there anyone at triple A for the Royals that maybe is worth considering that we haven't considered yet? Uh, not really. Um, <laughs> I think the one thing in AAA that you can get is when like guys like Richard Lovelady had dominant seasons out of the bullpen. Mm-hmm. Like that really stands out, right? In a league where the average ERA, what'd you say it was earlier, five point four. Yeah. You know, Richard Lovelady goes out there and dominates the league. Um, that stands out as being more impressive to me. So I don't really think you can get much out of it um, in terms of scouting the team. But um, when you're looking at one or two players, I still think you can get um, good sample sizes for, like, outliers, right? I think it makes outliers even more um, important, when, especially when the league's that bad. So, like, you look take a guy like uh, Scott Blewett, who really struggled this year. Um, you know, yes, the rest of the league struggled, but he, you know, more than struggled. And so you can, you can evaluate guys in that way a little bit but I mean with the new ball you know, it's almost impossible and and I just don't know like what to do with it with, even with the numbers we have because of the new ball I know they're saying it's the major league ball but you're playing in environments that were made to entertain right these ballparks minor league baseball teams operate independently of baseball and major league baseball teams in terms of revenue so they designed their ballparks for lots of home runs lots of offense to draw out crowds so they could try to make some money during the summer. Um, so when you put a major league baseball in there that's juiced, like you're just asking for problems. So, you know, yes, did Scott Blewett struggle? Yeah. Did he struggle a lot? Oh yeah. But with the new ball, if you put him in a major league ballpark, you know, we don't really know without a whole lot of pitcher batted ball data what that would have looked like. You know, was he generating weak contact that was getting, you know, rock around by the Pacific Coast League? It's just it's almost impossible to know for sure. So. Um, you know, that in, in that regard, I don't know what you can take out of it. But here's a really good example, I think, of what, like, the biggest number that I got out of AAA this year was, was Nicky Lopez. Um, he walked in almost 15% of his plate appearances. And I think a lot of people, when he got to the major leagues, thought, oh, man, Nicky Lopez is going to, you know, he's going to walk a lot, high on base guy, this, this, that, and the other. And then you go and look at his power numbers, his ISO, you know, the kind of power he wasn't hitting for relative to the league. And, you know, people walk, pitchers walk batters because they're afraid of where the ball might go if it gets hit. With Nicky Lopez, you know, if we had batted ball data on him, we can identify, you know what, we don't need to be afraid of this guy. We can pump strikes. And once we pump strikes, then it's a matter of, you know, it can he hit the ball hard enough to hit for a high average? Um and so I wasn't, you know, shocked that his walk rate came down, but I, because of the ISO, because of the power numbers that weren't there, um, so so there are some instances which I think it's useful, but again with the new ball, it's just it's almost impossible to tell. Yeah, and the kind of the usefulness of AAA got me thinking about a recent article by by Travis Sawchick at five thirty eight dot com where he kind of argued that uh, you know there there may be other ways of developing players rather than having them assigned to a minor league team and he suggested possibly cutting down the number of minor league affiliates and, and, and instead having some of your top players 
uh, go to work out at the team facility, then maybe get assigned for a few weeks, work on something, return to the facility. Uh, and some people took that as like a knock on minor league baseball. And I think there were a couple maybe unnecessary jabs at minor league baseball. Um, but I was just kind of curious if you guys, I don't know if you guys had a chance to read that, but just your kind of thoughts on uh, teams possibly on the sake of efficiency or development, you know, reducing the number of minor league affiliates and maybe, or at least maybe, you know, looking at development in a different way where you don't necessarily have to have a guy assigned to a team all, all summer. Maybe you have them shuttling back and forth between your facility in like Arizona or whatever. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, Sean. I like the idea of, in the sense that um, I don't know if there should be fewer minor league affiliates, but I do think you could do some cleanup. I don't know. I don't know if any teams have three A ball teams, but you definitely don't need three A ball teams. Um, I guess you could make. Here's my ideal one would be a triple A team, a double A team, a high A team, a low A team, and then. Um, Basically, I'm split on if you need a short season rookie league or if you can just have kind of the advanced. So basically, keep Idaho Falls, get rid of Burlington, keep Arizona AZL. So that way you've got a place to send your high school guys you draft. They can just hang out in Arizona, basically. Um, and then you've got the college guys you can send either. I don't. I hate sending college guys necessarily unless they're like really elite hitters, like maybe Andrew Vaughn, and even he went to rookie ball. Um, I hate sending those guys right to like high A or A ball. It's nice to kind of let them get their feet a little bit wet, and so I like that with having an advanced rookie ball like like the um, Pioneer League with Idaho Falls. Um, so I, but then again, I would be a total proponent of having four different DSL Dominican league team, a whole bunch of complex league teams. I mean, there's no reason you should be throwing as many resources as you can into minor league development. So I get it. I get it in that sense of like the quote where I think that article, they said something about like, it's basically just three guys. You've got, you know, 50 players and 47 of them are basically just playing. So three guys can be seen like three actual legit prospects. Um, I don't know if I agree with that, uh, but I do think there could be some cleanup, but then again, I mean, like I said, triple a, double a high, a, a low a of some sort. Um, and then a, an advanced rookie and an AZL that's still six. I'm basically eliminating one or two. So no, I don't think there's that much give or take. When uh, Dave Moore actually took over the Royals, only had one short season rookie ball team in Idaho Falls. They didn't have the affiliate in Burlington. They didn't have a, a second, you know, less advanced short season team. It was actually a big deal when they when he kind of convinced ownership to to add that affiliate. Uh, so I don't I, David Glass. I at the time was perceived as being cheap. Maybe now we can just say he was actually really efficient. Uh, Alex, I don't know if you had a chance to read that article. If you had any thoughts on on you know the if there's a possible movement of reducing the number of minor league affiliates and if that's a good idea or not. The one thing that I'll never be able to come, you know, to make a decision on is, you know, with minor league hitters, those guys need to be getting 300 plate appearances a year at least, right? I mean, we talk, they talk about timing all the time at the big league level, right? That you need your timing down, you need to see pitches, you need to be at bats. And if you miss time on the DL, like, or the IL, I'm sorry, it is hard um, to come back from that and, and to get going in a groove right away. And so, the problem that I always run into when I think about this is if, if I was a minor league, if I was a major league baseball team and I drafted high school kids, I wouldn't have them pitch in affiliated games for at least a year. Like I would send them to my complex. We'd train, we'd lift, we'd go to, you know, baseball school, whatever. 
and then they wouldn't pitch until at least the next June, and maybe you know not even then. Um, you know, I would handle pitchers in a very different way than I think most teams do, and that's an unprofessional opinion. The problem with that is then you have all these hitters laying around with nothing to do, right? There's nobody to face if you have your if you're not throwing pitchers in games, and so those guys need at bats, and so I don't know what the answer is. Um, honestly, what I'd love to be able to see is um, the NCAA pony up, allow college baseball teams to give 20 scholarships to D1 baseball teams like they should be allowed to, and then see college baseball increase, and then you don't need as many minor league teams. But since we know that's not going to happen, I don't know what the answer is because you have pitchers who don't necessarily need the innings, but you have hitters that need to play to appearances. And so I don't know what the answer is. And I think the problem that you get into, and, and I know you know with, with minor league pay, everybody – you know, everybody deserves a living wage, but the problem you get into is, you know, teams know that they don't need, you know, to throw their best prospects all time or to, to, to who have whoever out there. Like Sean said, with the 47 guys playing, so three can be watched. Um, you know, teams will just look to fill holes on the roster with anybody willing to play. Um, and, and it creates a, a huge divide there between which minor leaguers you pay a lot of money, which ones you don't, which is a whole other conversation. But, but I don't really know what the answer there is. I know it's complicated, um, but I would love to be able to see college baseball get more involved um, financially so that they can help solve that problem with college baseball. No, I think that's a really good point you make about college baseball because I think that would be a, kind of a nice solution if that was somehow possible to, to, to kind of fund college baseball and make a kind of the development league that the, NBA, the college basketball is for the NBA or college football is for the NFL. I, I guess I, I agree with you, Sean. I think the leagues you know, could be more efficient. Or the way they set up the minor leagues could be more efficient. But on the other hand, Major League Baseball is a $10 billion industry. And I think it kind of it struck me as kind of like hubris to think that, like, yeah, these teams can identify who the guys are that are going to be good and who are just playing to give those guys uh, uh, someone to play with. Uh, and certainly I, I, I think they know that most of the time, but there are still guys that fall through the cracks all the time that – you know, learn a new pitch or figure things out or work on their launch angle. I mean, the Astros are the team that give it, gave up on J.D. Martinez and he ended up being one of the best sluggers in baseball. I don't know if they're necessarily the team that can always figure out who are the players in their minor league system that uh, deserve the special attention and, and the rest can go play an indie ball. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and, and, and you can kind of correct me on this, but I, I kind of look at minor league development as kind of like the way uh, venture capitalists look at um, you know, tech companies in Silicon Valley, it's like most of these, they probably know a lot of these companies are duds, but you sprinkle around a lot of money hoping that you'll get that one unicorn that turns into the billion dollar, you know, company that makes you, you know, rich. Uh, and I think with minor league teams, you're, it's kind of the same thing. You're, you want as many of these assets you, as you can because all these guys turn into extremely undervalued players in the market that you can control for six years. And so if just one of those guys hits, I mean, I think the you know just having that minor league team in the Appalachian League is, was well worth it. So I'd be I think that argument that Travis was making would be a little more compelling if I knew like like the cost benefit you know analysis. Like we knew how much these minor league teams were costing uh, their major league uh, partners. Uh, but since we don't have that, I don't know. You know, it's hard for me to say that the Burlington Royals are really not worth you know having keeping them on the field because I'm pretty sure that they're developing at least one or two useful players. Uh, and there's a possibility that one of those players could end up being a really solid player for them. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, imagine, I mean, 
imagine if they told Whit Merrifield, "Hey, sorry, we don't have we don't have any minor league affiliate left for you to go right. to, or something like that." You know what I mean? Or basically, any of those guys, any of those senior college guys you signed for ten k would basically be eliminated because they you would have nowhere to put them, or you'd have to be like, "Hey, you have no chance. We're just using you to work out three prospects." So, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's an issue with it. Um, if you want to do maybe some cleanup and get rid of like a very low level, okay, maybe, but. There's so many players in baseball that, and baseball, as we know, is the only sport where you can't just basically go right from high school and be good. It takes, you know, unless you're Mike Trout, and even then it took him two years, maybe even three, I guess you could say. Um, and so it's it's impossible for these guys just to be good right away. So you have to have you have to have just waves of players and tons of you know bodies. You know, I think if you were look to look at like the least efficient. Uh, I guess level it would, it would be the Dominican summer league teams. I mean, you can look at several teams throughout the years, and you, there's there's no major leaguers at all. But those teams don't. I can't imagine they're costing very much money. And you know, you hit on a Salvador Perez, who you know, not many teams thought he was going to be an all star catcher. I mean, he was a third baseman when they signed him, and the Royals kind of developed him and turned him into an all star catcher. Uh, you know, the the, the cost. You know, certainly are outweighed vastly outweighed, I think, by the benefits there. So I can't imagine that it would be wise to to kind of skimp on that. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I I think minor leagues are worth investing in, uh, and and I do think, but I do think I, I, that Travis's point about maybe looking at a different way. And I think Alex, you kind of touch upon some some interesting ways that you could go about developing guys a little bit differently. That probably is coming down the pipe, and and maybe we should expect especially guys that get drafted and, and, and probably especially pitchers um, that that will be de- developed in a much different way going down the future. All right. Well, a hey, uh, Alex, why don't you tell us what's, what's going on at Royals farm report? What are you guys working on? What can we expect in the off season? Yeah, right now I'm working on getting our uh, end of the year player awards out. Um, it, it's been a very hectic um, couple months for us. We lost our, uh, fearless leader patrick brennan to kansas state we just lost one of our admin josh payton to a job as working as an agent for minor league baseball um so we're losing guys to bigger and better things so i'm trying to make sure that i've got a staff at the moment you know we got we lost joel to 2080 um so you know it's it's great um guys are getting bigger and better opportunities but um right i've I've kind of been focused on making sure i've got a staff at the moment and then once I figure out, you know, where we're going and making sure we got everybody, all our ducks in a row, we're going to have player awards. I'm going to, you know, kind of touch on my middle, mid, mid-season rankings. I know you guys will be covering the, the instructional league and the Arizona Fall League, and, of course, we got winter leagues as well. So definitely going to be a lot of prospect coverage uh, this off season. And, hey, before too long, we're going to be looking at the 2020 draft because this 100-loss season has got to be worth something to us. Uh, Sean, uh, you got anything in the, uh, the works you want to mention? Nope, just going to have our uh, minor li- our pitching uh, awards on Thursday. All right. Well, great. Uh, I appreciate you guys coming on. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, I'll chat with Clint Scholes of Royals Academy. Well, joining us now is Clint Scholes. Clint is the founder of Royals Academy, a source of detailed news on the Royals farm system, and a must-read for any diehard Royals fan who's interested in what's going on in the minor leagues uh royals academy is available at patreon for four dollars per month clint thanks so much for joining us no problem man thank you 
Well, the Royals farm system, I think, has been uh, much maligned the last couple of years, but it seems like they're making a lot of progress, especially this year, uh, particularly particularly due to last year's draft class. What's kind of your assessment of where this farm system is overall right now? What are kind of its strengths and weaknesses? And what do they need to do to kind of get into that upper echelon of, of farm systems where they need to be to kind of churn out a, a solid, sustainable winner? Well, I think... Uh my view and probably most people's view is that the uh, farm system kind of rides with the pitching right now. Uh, the 2018 draft class led by Brady Singer, Jackson Coar, Chris Bubik, among others, uh, has been kind of the boon that, that this <clears throat> farm system needed real, you know, a big, a big hit on, and it's probably hit better than even they could have imagined so far. So it's definitely pitching in this farm right now. Um, they do need some bats. They need some bats to have bounce back seasons this year, this next year, and going into 2020. And uh, but they do have some guys in in with their hitters that I think are are major league players and uh, some still high ceiling guys. But uh, overall, when you're ranking it amongst other teams, I'd say it's probably in the middle somewhere. And then uh, hopefully this next draft and uh, some improvements along the lines you, you hope they can break into the top 10 next year at some point yeah i think you're right about uh you're kind of relying on the pitching so far and, and i think you have to be as a royals fan really uh optimistic about the future just because of the season that some of those 2018 draft class pitchers had jackson Coar, brandy singer uh, chris bubik daniel lynch as well uh, what are you kind of looking for out of them next year i think We'll probably expect to see most of them, if not all of them, at Double A at some point next year. Um, is there is there a chance we could see some of them in the big league level? And what what do they kind of need to work on to to make that jump to the to the big leagues? I think Brady and Jackson have a really good chance to maybe even break. You know, not I wouldn't say break with the club, but be uh, a starter, a fifth starter, around after the April tenth. Spot. Um, I think that's when the Royals will need a fifth starter, and then uh, that's kind of about the same amount of time that when the uh, the <clears throat> worrying about service time kind of issues start to to float away because you're going to shut them down at the end of the season anyway. So I I would think one of them one of those two would be have a good opportunity, but just because AAA is so difficult to pitch in in such a, a friendly hitting environment that pitching them there compared to the majors probably isn't that great of, of a leap and and with Jackson and Brady especially with Brady I think Brady has a lot of uh just kind of inner confidence and and ability to adjust and, and make improvements during the year that I don't think him having to go through any major league struggles would really hurt him and hurt his future and uh so those guys I think you'll see them either in Omaha at the start of the year because it is winter and the ball shouldn't fly quite as far and uh, or on the major league roster you know, soon after if they succeed fairly quickly. And then the rest of the guys, I think the Wilmington group, you're probably looking at them all going to double-A to start the year, Bubik, Bolin, Austin Cox, Rita Lugo, you could probably toss in there as well. Um all those guys will go to Wilmington or they'll bounce up to Northwest Arkansas. And then maybe you'll see, I wouldn't be shocked if one of the Lexington pitchers joined them. I don't know if it would be Heasley or <clears throat> hockey or one of those guys. Uh, if they skipped over Wilmington, um, if their talent, you know, show enough in the spring and otherwise every 
you could get uh, a pretty good Wilmington group once again with Carlos Hernandez, Del Rosario, and, and some others going to Wilmington next year. Well, speaking of Wilmington, they did win another championship this or they won a championship this year, and there's a lot of the same guys that won a championship last year with Lexington in the South Atlantic League. Uh, you know, really impressive. It's, I think it's good to see these guys have some success on the field, but we also know that some of the, the hitters, and I think the Royals are kind of counting on Nick Prado, MJ Melendez, Suley Matias, who missed the second half with a hand injury. Very difficult seasons for them. Obviously, Wilmington is a tough place to hit, but what do you kind of see as the adjustments those three need to make uh, going forward? They obviously they got to make you know, just contact adjustments. I mean, you know, Wilmington is tough to hit, but then when you're striking out at a 30 to 40% clip, then you're just adding on to it. So they've just got to make better contact. You know, with Suli, he just swung through, and uh, some a little bit with Prado, too. They just swung through basic fastball, stuff that they were just crushing the year before. So I don't know what adjustments they can make, obviously. I think Suli was pulling off a, a little bit early. Maybe that had to do with the hand. Uh, Prado... You know he's a better hitter than that, and uh, but I think the talent there is Melendez, Isbell, Matias to a point. He's got a lot of tools. Um, I'm still unsure about Prado. I think you know there's some there's some worry there. I think uh, we've seen hitters pretty much all hitters struggle there. Uh, Mistakis, uh, you know, the only ones that I can remember. That didn't really struggle there. You, you at any point was Will Myers, David Lowe. They got through there pretty fast. Nicky Lopez got through there pretty quickly. Uh, you know, but most for the most part, guys go there and they struggle, and then they go back the next year, and then they'll they'll get through it. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see them return there, and then fairly hopefully they get out of there fairly quickly and get up to Double A. So, but the Royals, that's those three. They need to really get a hit there to to improve where they are as an organization. Somebody in, in there needs to be a stud, and so hopefully one of them can turn that turn those things around. I think mechanically you'll see some changes in Matias and maybe Melinda's swing, and, and hopefully they can become something. Yeah, Melinda's did seem to come on, I think, a little bit towards the end of the year, and of course he has this really solid defense to kind of fall back on. Prado's interesting and just... I mean, there's kind of a knock on him that um, he kind of argues with umpires a lot about the strike zone. I know he had a couple late ejections late in the year. Uh, so I don't know if it's just like a strike, you know, just learning the strike zone at the professional level that he kind of needs to figure out or, or uh, you know, maybe he needs to be maybe a little more aggressive at the plate. Uh, is there something you're seeing with him? Like, because obviously they, they like his athletic tools, um, you know, kind of kind of kind of fits the this athletic first baseman that they like kind of in the Hosmer mold a little bit. Um, but but yeah, the strikeouts. I don't know. Is there anything that he's you're, you're kind of seeing with him as far as why he's struggling so much with with the with the strike zone? Now, uh, with the strike zone, with him and Khalil Lee both, they I think they have a better grasp of it than minor league umpires. And yeah. in 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 most cases with them, they probably do. But that doesn't matter. That's the the umpire is going to strike out strike you out if you you know if, if he deems it a strike, and so. They need to play with under those parameters at times, and and realize that they can't. And I understand they think they have a good grasp of it, but it doesn't matter, and they need to adjust. So, uh, with Prado, as far as you know, mechanics-wise, he doesn't look anything you know any different than he did the year before, and 
from what I was told is that a lot of change-ups were beating him early in the year and and while that sounds like it's a you know a good excuse I don't I don't really see that I mean high a the change-ups are improved from low a to high a but you're still not going to be running into a Jackson Tolar changeup every night. So you're not you're not featuring devastating stuff. I've, I'm really surprised. I don't know. <clears throat> I thought of any of the three that could go there and succeed, it would be him. I thought he might be able to take advantage of the big ballpark and just more room to work if he just you know operated kind of like he did at the end of the year with Lexington, just kind of slashing the ball you know gap to gap. So it's it definitely seems like the sales tool that everybody said pre-draft when he came out that he was a Joey Votto type hitter and and that has kind of been oversold and so the Royals now they need to figure out what they can get out of him if he if he can become the hitter that everybody thought he was and or at least get close to that point I think he's got to be able to provide there's still questions about the power too so there's a, a big uphill climb for him. Well, another young hitter the Royals are counting on is their first overall pick or first round pick from this year, Bobby Witt Jr. He had his first taste of professional baseball, hitting 262 with a 317 on base, 354 slug, one home run in 37 games in the Arizona Summer League. What was your kind of takeaway from his play this year? I know it's kind of a big adjustment to go from you know playing high school ball in Texas to uh, going to Arizona and playing against you know 22, 25 year old men, really. Uh, what was your kind of impression of Bobby Wood's first professional season? Statistically, the the numbers don't look great when you compare him to other guys and other draftees. Um, but from the scouts I've talked to, he's looked good. Uh, they think he's a you know he's that guy still, and so and I don't think you've seen anyone really drop off, drop him off down the list at all yet. So I, I think he'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> It's probably just getting his feet under him. You know, you go from being the second overall pick, winning a state title in in baseball, then traveling around in New York and for the draft, and 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 then go to the ESPYS and stuff like that. It was probably just a busy draft. But this, I think, this next season and what we'll see, we'll start to get a better idea of what kind of player he is. Um, the one thing I've heard defensively, he's outstanding. Um, very solid. The only question is, will he grow out of the position and move over to third base? That was the only thing I've, you know, I've seen. But then the Royals must not seem too concerned about it because they're going to leave him at short during instructs, and they're going to be moving Brady McConnell to the outfield during that during instructs. So that was one thing that kind of stood out to me yesterday when I when I put that out and. Uh, and so the Royals must not be too, too concerned about him moving out of the position. So, yeah, this, the season as a whole, you probably want to see a little bit better results in the Arizona League and, and maybe get bumped up to a, another level or so. But from every scout I've spoke to, they, they don't seem too concerned. So I'm not going to be yet. We've only seen a couple months uh, of action out of some of these 2019 draftees. But aside from some Bobby, from Bobby Wood, is there anyone else from that draft class that's kind of standing out to you so far? You mentioned Brady McConnell, maybe moving to the outfield. Um, who's kind of uh, popped out to you out of the draft class for the Royals this year? Um, you know, the Pascantino with the uh, Burlington Royals had a very good season. 14 home runs, first baseman. You'd like to uh, you like to see that kind of results and, and those kind of things that that come out right away. I think Alec Marsh 
you know, did pretty well in Idaho Falls. That's a tough pitching environment to, to pitch in. And so he, he kind of stood out there. Um, other than that, uh, the one that kind of, when I talk about McConnell, his strikeout rate was very concerning in Idaho Falls for a college guy to, to strike out at, you know, a 40% clip, 30 to 40% clip there and swing through with his high, I think his, his swinging strikeout rate was near 20%, which that's for a college guy seems a bit, bit too high. That's pretty concerning. Um, other than that, I think the pitchers all did pretty well. Uh, the guys that went out and pitched, they, and, but the, to the point they're, they're probably pitching below a level where they need to be. So next year is kind of where we'll start to evaluate most of the draftees. Who are some uh, kind of under-the-radar prospects that maybe improved their stock this year? I mean, I think we're pretty familiar with kind of the big arms from the 2018 draft class, but is there someone that maybe wasn't a top-10 guy that, that really had a successful 2019 season that may start appearing on top-10 list for the Royals pretty soon or at least is kind of on the radar as a guy that could be a, a high-riser pretty soon? Um, you know, the biggest one for me, um, just and the results probably aren't as as outstanding as what people see on the on the page, but you know Zach Hockey was a, an 18 draftee, but he was I think their sixth round pick that year, and uh, his stuff is really outstanding. And you're talking a 90 fastball works at you know pretty much regularly in 95. It's up to 97, 98. At times his changeup is you know pretty much like a what I was described as kind of a you know, a two, a, a split finger, just how it kind of dives away from hitters. Uh, slider at times can be dominant too. If the Royals can find any kind of consistency with him outing to outing, then I think you got a possible back end middle rotation guy. If not that, then I think you got a, a late seat, you know, bullpen type guy who can work late in the bullpen, maybe eighth, ninth inning type. And uh, another guy not many people talk about that's already at double A, and I've just released an interview with him today, is Tyler Zuber. Uh, it's a guy, 95, 96, pretty regularly. Uh, works out of the bullpen, diving the late slider out of the same slot. Good, decent curveball. Uh, this is a guy who probably next year can really challenge and, and see, you know, see, be in the big leagues and help out a very struggling bullpen. So that's a guy that Royals fans could probably see a quick return on, probably see him in spring training. He's going to be playing winter ball this year. So those are a couple names I'd probably put on the list. Another guy I like is down in Lexington's Ruben D. Jaquez. He just has a decent feel for hit and a little bit of pop, can play some second base. It'll be interesting to watch his progression up the ladder and and see how he handles Wellington next year, which I imagine that's where he'll arrive. And, and see, I think you're probably looking at maybe a Kiaspo-type player in him maybe here in a couple years, and if he can get through Wilmington and get up to the, the upper levels and handle everything. And, you know, a guy who can, has decent athleticism, can run a little bit, but, uh, you know, has a pretty decent hit to as he ages and gets a little bit older. So he's a player to watch. Yeah, I was talking with Alex Duvall at Royals Farm Report, and he really liked Jack Hez as well. 
hockey's really interesting to me. Just he's a, a guy that I think really is a good testament to scouting and development because he's a guy that you, you look at the numbers at University of Kentucky and he was just really awful his last year there. Uh, but but he obviously had the the, the fastball and, and some pretty good stuff they could work with. So if they can get anything out of him, I think that would be pretty impressive and a, and a good feather in the cap of uh, their minor league development. Um, let's talk about your newsletter a little bit. I think it's a really great deep dive into the farm system. And I feel like I always learn a little bit something new about prospects that I didn't know before. Uh, like, for example, this week you, you told you reported about a, a kid the Royals signed out of the Czech Republic, which I didn't even know uh, there was baseball being played in the Czech Republic. And you have some really great updates on like under the radar players, especially guys in the Dominican Summer League, uh, guys that are international free agents. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Royals Academy and, and what uh, I think people can expect to find when they uh, when they sign up for it on Patreon. Yeah, that's. You know, it's been with the website at my regular Royals Academy site, and and just putting on there. Um, you know, I try to give a little bit of a little bit of things every day, but then with the Patreon, I'm trying to give a little bit deeper dive into stuff that you might not hear about, not might not see, or things that I'm talking about with play, with people around the industry. So I'm trying to give people just a little bit deeper dive for you know to, and that's where you'll be able to find my prospect lists and and things like that and i just think for me to do it every day i mean you know it sounds kind of selfish but i you know for me to do it every day and devote the much passion and and time that i do i you know it's just a way for me to monetize it and then create different avenues and, and more things with with that i can go down to instructs or i can go down to you know go to wilmington or an an, an affiliate and kind of interview guys and and dig into even more things and that's where you kind of get more information when you're actually on site and, and can see things and and so this following the the minor leagues and, and seeing the development's always been kind of a passion of mine and so with the patreon and and what i like to put on there and uh you know i think i i think if you read the interview today with tyler's duper that i put out uh you'll learn a few a little more things and the community on Twitter with the Royals community, I think we're pretty well informed, but there's a lot of things that people just don't, a lot of, you know, things that people discuss that just aren't true that I've talked about with the front office staff. And, you know, the, I think they get a lot of, you're kind of seeing it being written about this year that they are in analytics and, and, technology and into that stuff more than what I think the Royals community thought going before, especially with the, the rumors and the innuendos in the past. So it's, <clears throat> that's what I'm trying to give on Patreon is to give a little bit behind the scenes kind of view and give everybody an idea of what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. And so, you know, subscribing, it's, it is four dollars a month, but uh, you can contribute as little as a dollar a month. It doesn't have to be that, and just uh, and I think I'm gonna I give a lot to offer and make it worthwhile for everybody to read. Yeah, you can uh, you definitely find a lot of interviews and a lot of uh, you know uh, good insider information. And so I think if you know for four dollars a month, I think you know really anyone that's like really die hard about the Royals and wants to know more about the future of this franchise uh, because that's you know we're going to be relying upon these minor leaguers. Uh, I think it's definitely worth worth the investment. I and, and what's really great is you get every morning you get like an email that kind of gives you an update on what what was posted yesterday. So um, definitely you know look for that. It's on Patreon.com/slash Royals Academy. 
Uh, and you can you can definitely check that out and give Clint a follow on Twitter at at Clint Scholes at C L I N T S C O L E S. Clint, thanks so much for joining us. No problem, Max. Thank you. Well, that will do it for this show. Thanks again to Sean Newkirk and Alex Duvall, as well as our guest Clint Scholes for being on the show. And thanks to all our readers and listeners at Royals Review, and we'll talk to you next time.